You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. So let's read from Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they said. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But But some of them became obstinate, They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. They calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He also sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, whilst he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Well, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at City Church, and uh, wonderful to have you with us if this is your first time uh, or your 500th. It's great that you've been able to join us. We're into a series looking at the book of Acts, and the first few um, passages that we've looked at in this new series have been very challenging, and I hope for those of you who've been with us for that, very encouraging too. But why don't I pray before we dive into Acts chapter 19. Heavenly Father, we do come before you now in every humility. 
knowing that it is, it is you we come to hear, that you are the God who made all things, and you made us, and you know the circumstances of our life, where we have come from this week, and you know what lies ahead, not merely in the week to come, but for the rest of our days. And so we trust that this word is designed to be applied to us today from a God who knows us and loves us. May we hear the challenges that you would seek to bring, but may we hear great words of comfort. And as we have sung, may above all, may we see Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a, there's a particular word that I know of that will strike fear into the heart of, of any teacher here in this room. I wonder if you can guess what it is. It's the word Ofsted. That's right. For those of you who don't know what that is, Ofsted is a government uh, group of inspectors that goes around uh, looking at schools, deciding on whether they're good or bad. Now, before I was... Um, uh, a church leader, I was actually a teacher in a secondary school. And one of the schools I taught in uh, was a school in uh, North Liverpool. It's a fairly kind of uh, rough and ready school, but they were not ready when the Ofsted inspectors called. You're only given a few days' notice back then. Um, and so the teacher, I was only a trainee teacher at the time, and my, um, my experienced and wise teaching mentor... Uh, was so panicked by the fact that Ofsted were coming for the very simple reason he hadn't marked any of his class's books over the last year. And so my role over the days that Ofsted were in the school was to basically be sat in one of those teaching cupboards. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? They're no bigger than a broom cupboard. Uh, they've got no windows. They're just full of shelves. And there was I, for a few days of the Ofsted inspection, sat in the dark with a flashlight marking a year's worth of English books. That was my experience of Ofsted. But you know, Ofsted, their goal is to reveal healthy schools and to expose false places that claim to be institutions of education. Why does it matter? They've been in the press a lot very recently. Well, it matters because a healthy school increases the likelihood of a child having a healthy life. So let me ask you a personal question this afternoon. Would your life be exposed under the inspection of a spiritual Ofsted? Would your life be exposed under the inspection of a spiritual Ofsted? The reason it matters is because faith only has two categories. Either it is authentic or it is false. And that's what we're going to be looking at today from Acts chapter 19. The context of this particular chapter is the Apostle Paul is a Christian missionary, and his role is to take the good news of Christianity right across the Roman Empire. And you heard from the reading um, just a few minutes ago that you can quite clearly see Acts chapter 19 is something a little bit special, isn't it? If anyone says the Bible is boring, you can quite clearly see that they've never read it because there's loads 
loads in this passage, and we're going to seek to work through it. You see, Ephesus is the city that Paul comes to, and Ephesus considered itself to be a spiritually lively, spiritually healthy place. It had a reputation for spirituality more than a craft tent at the Glastonbury Festival. Ephesus was the place to be if you considered yourself spiritual in any way. And so I've got three points for us this afternoon. The first one's this, Jesus or nothing. Authentic spirituality. Jesus or nothing. Authentic spirituality. Look with me at verse one. The Apostle Paul, he comes to Ephesus and he meets, we're told, 12 believers. It's a core team of what you would describe as a new church. And we can imagine that the Apostle Paul, having arrived at the city of Ephesus, he must be absolutely thrilled. We've got a church already pretty much up and running, ready to go. But in verse 2, something's not quite right. Do you see that? We don't have very many details in this passage, but based on the conversation that's denoted here, there are a couple of clues. I wonder if, as Paul and the 12 in Ephesus were enjoying time together, I wonder if Paul noticed that the prayers of this group always focused on calling to the great God, creator of the universe, but for some strange reason, nobody ever mentioned Jesus. Perhaps they had really great times of worship. The band was amazing. They sang beautifully. Paul really enjoyed it. But the lyrics, they seem to just focus on perhaps sorrow of sin, that is rebellion against God. Uh, perhaps they just focused on the mercy of God. But, but perhaps Paul noticed that they never really sang about Jesus. They never sang about his death. They never sang about his resurrection. Perhaps Paul really enjoyed the Bible studies, looking at the Old Testament scriptures is what they would have had, or perhaps the talks that he heard whilst he was with them. They all focused on a kind of message that said, look, things are really hard right now, but don't worry, because some point in the future, God is going to send his servant and then it's going to be okay. And I wonder if Paul was like, uh, guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their response is, no. And then Paul's response is, well then, what, were you, what was the baptism that you received? And Paul is told in our passage that they received the baptism of John. Now, hear this really clearly, the baptism of John. I need to tell you a little bit about the baptism of John in order for all of this to make sense. You see, the baptism of John was a very exciting, what you would call spiritual movement. You might describe it as some sort of spiritual awakening that even happened before Jesus really started his ministry. You see, the baptism of John was, was where John was a preacher who stirred up the realisation that every person, everyone, had walked away from God. 
that everyone in some senses had rejected God and therefore John was teaching that everyone in their own way was responsible for the brokenness of the world. That's what John was teaching. And John's baptism was an absolutely revolutionary movement. It was inviting people to say, hey, you've got to take responsibility for the brokenness of the world, at least your part in it. You can't just live a life where you're blaming other people because things aren't as they ought to be. You've got to put your hand up and say, actually, there's something wrong within me. And John challenged them that you cannot be your own saviour. John challenged them and said, you can't just find the good deep within yourself and bring that out and then you'll be fine. John taught, and this was the game changer at the time, he taught that actually God was going to send a saviour to fix you because you couldn't do that yourself. God would send a saviour was John's message and that's what people were baptised in. That was the mark that you were owning the responsibility for the brokenness, your sin in the world. And as a mark that you were waiting for God to send his saviour, whoever that would be, you would get baptised. That is the baptism of John. So does this help us make a little bit of sense of what's going on with this Ephesus 12? They are a group who are spiritually enthusiastic. They are spiritually absolutely switched on, but they are missing one, one vital piece of the jigsaw. They were missing out Jesus. And look with me at verse four. Paul says that you guys need to know that actually Jesus was the saviour that John was pointing to. Everything that you were enjoying about John's ministry, Jesus is the punchline. Now, look, let's get to the application pretty soon on into this, shall we? Two applications. Firstly, let me speak to those of you here this afternoon or watching online who would consider yourselves spiritual. <clears throat> I imagine that's a good deal of us, actually. Perhaps you're even sympathetic to Christianity. Maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, but for you, you would say that there is something more to this world than just what we see around us. There's something bigger, something more purposeful, something more beautiful. Perhaps for you... In your world, in the way that you see, the way that life is, that there is something really attractive about the ancient paths, about the traditions, about faith, about ritual, about temple, about eternity. All of that stuff kind of appeals to you. Perhaps for you too, there is a belief that the world really isn't as it ought to be. And you're quite happy to put your hand up and say, actually, I'm not going to blame others. I'm going to say that I'm partly responsible and that there is a darkness within me that needs to be healed. Perhaps you might even go as far if you were pushed to say, look, I, I'm even sympathetic with the God of the Bible. I, I, I love the wisdom that you read in the, the Christian teachings of Scripture. Actually, I find the teachings of the Bible very profound to me in a very deep way. I wonder if I'm describing you. But let me put this as sensitively and as clearly as I possibly can. 
without faith in the Jesus of history who's described in the Bible as the saviour who lived the perfect life and died for the forgiveness of our sins and who rose again to guarantee eternal life, without faith in him, your Christian sympathies, even your right instinct, are no more helpful to you than getting four out of the five lottery numbers correct and pleading that they give you 50 million pounds. Close isn't enough. Saving faith is Jesus or nothing. Look with me at verses four and five. Only when they recognize Jesus for who he actually is, the Holy Spirit, we're told, that is God himself, comes to dwell within them. And he comes immediately. Do you see that? And their world is turned absolutely upside down and changed forever. In fact, the description of the guys speaking in tongues, that is, talking in languages that have never been learned, or prophesying, that is, applying God's truth with an insight beyond their experience or understanding, well, the reason that this is the particular expression of the Holy Spirit in the lives of this group from Ephesus is because, and I love this, it's meant to echo a moment in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 2, the, the, the disciples and the believers, they're in Jerusalem, they're all gathered in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come as Jesus promised. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. They have flames of fire on top of their heads and then they go out into the streets of Jerusalem speaking in languages they have never learned, talking and praising about Jesus. So that people hear the words of God and their lives are transformed. That's what happened back in Acts chapter 2 and what we see in Acts chapter 19 for this group as a marker that their faith is now real, that it's now authentic, is the same thing happens. What happens in 19 is meant to echo Acts chapter 2 so that we can look at this and say this is the real deal. These guys now have authentic faith. That's the first application of this. Second application. Let me speak to those of you here today who would claim to be Christians. You claim to be Christians and yet you doubt whether your faith is actually authentic. In fact, you're reading this passage and you're slightly worried that you are just as misguided as the 12 guys in Ephesus before Paul arrived on their doorstep. I understand why you may fear that because actually doubt, doubt is a natural part of what it means to be a Christian. And when you see the spiritual fireworks in Acts chapter 19 that affirm the Holy Spirit has come upon these brand new believers, well, it can easily make you wonder if the reason that your own spiritual life, perhaps even today, feels just very dry and very anemic in comparison with these guys in the passage, is it because my faith isn't real? Is it because I'm doing something wrong? Perhaps I'm not authentic. 
Now, it is true that every believer has the Holy Spirit in them the moment they become a Christian. And look, for some, for some, it is evidenced by gifts such as speaking in tongues or prophecy. And there will be a small number of you here today for whom God's kindness to you is that the Spirit of God within you has bestowed upon you the gifts of prophecy or speaking in tongues as a marker of God's presence within you. For some, that will be true of you. However, for all of us who are Christians, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. This fruit is meant to testify that actually the Holy Spirit is authentically within us. The Holy Spirit within us powerfully removes old ways of living and transforms us to be more and more and more like Jesus. You see, the Christian is not the finished product. The Christian, if you will, is like a a, a ruined cathedral full of scaffolding that over an entire lifetime is being gently and slowly restored moment by moment in greater levels of beauty and wonder and awe, but we are not a finished product, this side of the new creation. In a letter Paul wrote to another church in a place called Galatia, he lists the fruit of the Spirit that Christians should expect to see. He says there, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if you want to see the evidence of an authentic faith that is evidence of the Holy Spirit of God at work within you, even today, well, look at your life for evidence that these fruit, this behavior, these mindsets are present within you. Just over a week ago, the well-known author and pastor Tim Keller sadly passed away. And I know many of us have listened to his talks and have read his books and have found him very, very helpful. And there's always one thing that um, Keller taught that has always stuck with me. And it was when he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit, evidences of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and he cautioned this. He said, don't make the mistake of seeing the defaults of your personality as evidence for the Holy Spirit active within us. Rather, look to where you have acted contrary to your instinct. What he meant is this. If you are a natural, by personality and temperament, a very gentle, calm person... Look in your life for markers of when you have shown the courage to get into conflict for a reason of justice, where you've actually had to say no to your inclinations just to keep the peace because there was a greater good at stake that you felt called to bring some good to. Or if you are a naturally, perhaps you are a naturally fairly kind of go-getting and impulsive, maybe you wear your emotions on your sleeve and you just tell people as it is. 
Well, why don't you look for moments in your life when you actually had to fight to be calm and patient and self-controlled because that is what the situation required in order for you to bring great good in that circumstance. Or if you have found yourself in a very long season of sadness, which I know some of you have in this room, you should look for moments where you have experienced those episodes of joyful thanksgiving to the Lord. Do you see? More than tongues, more than prophesying, the remarkable power of authentic, spirit-filled faith is when you have the courage through the power of the Spirit within you to swim against the tide of your bad habits, your hard, wired routines, and your patterns in order to bring an extraordinary good into the world, even for some of us if it's only momentary. I think of the life change of John Newton. He wrote the very famous um, uh, hymn. Uh, and John Newton, he, he used to be a slave trader. He used to be a captain. And he, by all accounts, he was a really, really nasty piece of work. People didn't like him. They didn't want to work with him. He was all about the money. And because he was in slavery, he didn't care how many scores, hundreds of lives he threw away, discarded, if it meant that he had gold in his pocket. And yet when he became a Christian, for him, everything changed. We think of him as the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, but he was more than that. He actually changed his life. He stopped pursuing wealth, and actually pursued a humble life to serve the Lord. Rather than just pursuing selfishness, he actually spent his energy and health seeking to help those who are still in slavery. Look for evidence of the Spirit changing your life as the marker of authentic faith within you. And enjoy it when you see it. Give God praise and thanksgiving. If you're not yet a believer here this afternoon, and I'm so pleased that you're able to join us, it's really important for you to know Christianity is not simply a philosophy or a collection of wise sayings. It is utterly, utterly, utterly different. In fact, it is the confidence that the God who made the world, he knows you and he loves you and he resides within all believers and he is fiercely jealous of any disease, dark force or oppression that would hold us captive and steal our joy. So look with me at verses 8 to 20 because they should come with a warning. As we come to our second point, authentic faith transforms lives. This isn't just head stuff, it genuinely transforms lives and it transforms communities. But what we're going to see that false faith promises everything but delivers nothing. Come with me to our second point, Jesus or nothing, authentic power. The second half of, of our passage, if, if you're looking at it in your Bibles, is really weird. And it, look, it is really weird if you are a regular <laughs> churchgoer or if this is your very first time. It is very, very strange. It is a seat belts on type of passage like that. So look with me at verse 8. Because verse 8, it starts with a lecture 
Okay. And then it climaxes in verse 18, where a whole community of believers have their lives turned upside down and transformed. Starts with a lecture and then ends with a big bonfire. Starts with a lecture and sees a community turned on its head. So the question is kind of like, what's the connection here? We're told in verse 18 that scores of people practice magical art. They, they, they take their gear and they burn it. Now, that's not a group of people who are having a barbecue with all of their Harry Potter memorabilia. Actually, it's the equivalent of probably thousands and thousands of pounds worth of books on our equivalent today of manifesting or crystals or astrology or horoscopes all getting rid of that material permanently, symbolizing that they are part of a new community of people declaring that the only supernatural power that they will put any dependence on for their future is that of God. In other words, they're testifying by this big bonfire, it's Jesus or nothing. But remember, it starts with a lecture and then it ends in this very radical bonfire. What is going on? And if you could figure out what the steps were between a lecturer and then this life-changing, community-transforming bonfire, if you could figure out the steps, wouldn't that change your life? Wouldn't that change your community? Isn't that exactly the type of transformation we're looking for in this church? Hmm. Well, let me take you through three steps that take you from a lecture to a bonfire. Step one, look at me at verses eight to 10. Explore the gospel. It really should say explore the gospel thoroughly. Now, it's important to know that the gospel, the gospel is a story of what happened in history when God became human and was killed on a cross and rose from the dead and all of the life implications that come from that. And in verses 8 to 10, we're told that Paul unleashes that story. He literally unleashes that story in the very heart of the city of Ephesus. And he exposes this city of Ephesus to the gospel for longer than any other place that he has previously visited. He exposes the gospel to the city for two and a quarter years. That is longer than anywhere else. And the result is that the gospel trends on all of the social media platforms of this city and numerous numbers of people get to explore what the story of the gospel is. You see, you might be thinking, well, yes, Matt, I, I think I've heard the gospel, but how do I really know? How do I really know if I've heard the gospel and wrestled with it? Well, here's a shorthand. If you still think that Christianity is all about following rules in order to get right with God then you haven't heard the gospel. I'm just putting that out there. Step two, verses 11 to 12. Look at me at verses 11 to 12. I've titled it Watch for the Fireworks, but it could quite easily be Watch for the Unexpected Fireworks. Do you see verses 11 to 12? The first reading of these verses is blatantly bizarre. Cloths from Paul seem to be more effective than your average turmeric shot that I believe is very popular in, in Manchester right now. Now, these cloths that are described, they're likely to be sweat rags from Paul. Literally, sweat rags. 
And these rags are taken round, and people are touching them, which is frankly disgusting from my perspective. And yet people are being healed. We're told that all number of diseases and illnesses, people are being healed just by touching these sweat rags from Paul. Now, look, this makes absolutely no sense until you realize that this is another echo. It's another echo. And it's an echo to a famous moment in Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 4, verse 27, which describes there's this woman who has been internally bleeding for years and years and years. No doctors have been able to help her. And she, she's in a crowd and Jesus is passing by and she puts out her hand and she just touches his robe, just touches the cloth. And because of her faith, she's healed. Just there and there. That's, that's what this is meant to be echoing. Again, it's another echo of what happened in the past to show what's going on in Ephesus. This is real. This is bona fide. This is authentic. So how, how might this apply to us? Well, simply this. When the gospel goes out to a community, when the gospel is thoroughly taught in a community, you need to watch for indirect explosions of God's gracious power. Indirect explosions of God's gracious power. Because you'll notice when the gospel goes out, when the story is told, you'll most likely start seeing remarkable things happening around it. There's lots of examples that I was thinking that I could share with you on this one, but one that particularly lands on me is when I was a student at Lancaster University, uh, we had planned, when I was part of the Christian Union, a barbecue. I mean, this is great barbecue weather. I'm sure some of you are taking advantage of that. Well, we had planned a barbecue for 300 people at the university. We had invited them along. Uh, they'd all paid about three pounds for their burgers and sausages, and they knew that there was going to be a gospel talk. We had got someone in who was brilliant, who was going to come and share the gospel with, with this 300-strong crowd of our friends and, and study colleagues from university. They would have great food, they'd have great chat, but most of all, they would hear the gospel. That's what we were excited about. Gospel was really going to go out to the campus at Lancaster. On the day of the actual barbecue, the day that we'd planned for all of these people to actually hear the story of the gospel, well, we were told by the caterers that there'd been a terrible mistake, and I'm afraid the uh, industrial barbecue would not be coming. And we were gobsmacked. This was hours before 300 people were descending to hear the message of Jesus, but there would be nothing that else they expected. The hospitality of the food, the barbecue, the party, the celebration, gone. So we prayed. And we sent one group to, um, uh, to, to the side and we said, you just got to pray. Just got to pray. Suddenly we got a phone call. And it was from one of the local church leaders. He said, we just heard about the, the situation for you guys. It just so happens there's been a church's barbecue in Lancaster City Centre this week. We've got a whole bunch of large industrial barbecues. We can bring them over to campus right now. Would that be useful? We said yes. 
Someone else said, well, we should go and get the food then. We'll go to Sainsbury's. So we sent a group to Sainsbury's. Uh, pick up what you can. They went to, uh, to the manager of Sainsbury's. It was on a Saturday. They went to the manager. They said, look, we planned this barbecue, 300 people coming. The caterer is cancelled on us. What do we do? He says, like, I will give you some of my um, kind of employees. Uh, they will go around with some baskets and trolleys. Um, uh, you guys can put as much meat and as bread in the baskets as you want. The meat's on us. You just pay for the bread. Wow. That day, the gospel went out. It was a wonderful telling of the gospel to those university students. Those 300 came, they heard. But God in his kindness brought a whole firework display of other wondrous kindnesses to demonstrate his goodness and his generosity. Now, I'm not saying that happens all the time. But often that is the case. When the gospel goes out and is thoroughly explored, you'll often see in the life of the community a number of other very special things happening, just like that happened in Acts 19. Well, come with me to step three. But actually, there is an application before we get there. When you hear that, I wonder if there's two, two choices. You can either go, yeah, that's good for you, but that'll never happen to me. Or you can listen to that and kind of go, do you know, I'm kind of curious to see what happens if I was to unleash the gospel in my work, in my university, in my neighborhood, on my street. And I would encourage you to take that second option. Just pause for a moment and ask yourself the question, how curious would you be to see the gospel unleashed amongst those you live, work, and study with? And if you're curious, why don't you have a go? Take it out for a ride on a coffee, a barbecue, or even a cheeky Nando's with friends and see what the Lord might do through it. Okay, come with me to step three, verses 18 to 20. This one's called Change Your Life. It's all about life transformation. We've started off at the lecture. We're, we're here at the, the bonfire almost, aren't we? I want you to see that the bonfire of supernatural stuff, of magic books and spells, is actually more relevant to you than you would first imagine. You see, the supernatural tools that help you manipulate God or the spirits or the fates or the universe or whatever it is our culture talks about are really only tools to help you cope with the anxiety of living in a chaotic world by trying to control it. That's what magic is, isn't it? Magic is manipulation through words or actions or willpower. Now, you may have nothing to do with magic. You may be an absolute muggle, but my guess is that you probably have your own methods, don't you? To cope with anxiety. You probably have your own methods to try and manipulate and control the universe around you. For you, it could be drink, it could be drugs, it could be relationships, it could be overwork or underwork, overeating, undereating, people-pleasing, I don't know. Whatever it is. 
What we see with the bonfire in verse 18, with all of these lives being changed to give all of that away, is that the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of believers, when it's unleashed through belief in Jesus, is strong enough to free you from your unhealthy coping mechanisms. It is strong enough to free you from those things that you are putting a supernatural weight upon to help you thrive in a very painful world. Verse 18 reminds us those cycles of misery that we feel trapped in actually can be broken. Isn't that good news this afternoon? Do you see the power of the Spirit as the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ is unleashed amongst a community over a period of time It changes people. It changes communities. That is exactly what we want to see in this church. And my guess is that is exactly what you want to see in your own life. But notice how different this is to fake Christianity. There are false prosperity churches littered right across this city. And they all tell you that actually authentic Christianity means that you can tighten your grip on having more wealth. Look in our passage. Authentic Christianity sees people release their hands of pursuing wealth. They disadvantage themselves by approximately, what, 50,000 drachmas. Can you see the difference between false Christianity and authentic Christianity? It's not about the money. And then we come to the example of the exorcists, don't we? The Ghostbusters team of seven who claim the power over Jesus. And yet, notice, because they have no authentic faith, it makes no impact. In fact, the, the detail that this passage goes into, it holds that they're the, they're the sons of Sceva, the high priest. This is meant to be embarrassing. It's meant to be humiliating. They came with so much power and education. They should have, on paper, been able to transform this person and do the exorcism, but they can't. And they're sent out broken and bloody and bleeding and naked and utterly, utterly humiliated making the point that the Holy Spirit is so powerful that he can take Paul's sweat rags and heal diseases where this educated bunch of elites can do nothing. Jesus or nothing. Authentic spiritual power. We're about to finish, but I wonder if some of you are thinking... Really? Is that all he's going to say about the demon possession? Because that's the really weird bit in this passage. There is something that I want to kind of finish on with that picks up on that. It's our final short point. Jesus became nothing. Authentic love. The theme of this talk this afternoon has been all about putting your trust in the authentic Jesus. We began with a group in Ephesus who thought they knew Jesus, but they really didn't. We have this group of this seven educated, high-profile people, the sons of Sceva, who thought they had the power to wield on Jesus, but they didn't. And so this passage is really all about Jesus and how he continues to act through the power of the Holy Spirit even today. So I guess the question to finish on quite rightly is, what what do we need to know about this Jesus? Now, for those of you who aren't Christians here today, what is the one thing, if you could walk away with knowledge of Jesus, what is the one thing that you would need to know? 
A number of years ago, I was working in a homeless cafe, and I met a man who claimed to be possessed by a demon. He said that he was an agent of Satan in the city of Liverpool, where I was working at the time. And he told me that his job was to serve the devil in every possible way, causing disruption, hurt, and pain. And his favorite way to do it was by lighting fires. It was a very creepy conversation. And um, the, the weirdest bit was just as he was leaving, he said, oh, by the way, you need to uh, see a doctor about your chest infection. Funny thing was, I was fine. I didn't have a chest infection until two days later. It's weird, right? Isn't that creepy? Now, call it psychosomatic. Call it a good guess. Call it, I don't know, all sorts of challenges that that person may be going through. If that was actually true, doesn't it make you feel a little bit of a sense of relief that if Jesus could go head-to-head with someone like that, then we're fine? Actually, there's a moment in history where Jesus does come face-to-face with the greatest scheme of dark supernatural forces ever assembled. These dark supernatural forces had actually put in place a trap to undermine and destroy God's plan for bringing good goodness to the world. And Jesus, when he gets head to head with that, do you know what he does? Here's the twist. He doesn't come in power. He actually lays down his life. He walks willingly into the trap. And those supernatural dark forces, in collaboration with the authorities of the time, they see Jesus, and just like the sons of Sceva, Jesus is stripped, he is beaten, he is bloodied, he is absolutely publicly humiliated. The one who should have come in all power came in total weakness and humiliation. But unlike the sons of Sceva, he didn't crawl out of the house alive. He was actually nailed to pieces of wood and publicly displayed until he was murdered. And we look at that situation 2,000 years ago and we ask ourselves, don't we? But he had all the power. We've seen it in this passage. He had all the power and yet never used it. But this is what you need to know about the real Jesus. You see, Jesus knowing knowing that he would return in the future to bring total justice, a justice that would include all dark supernatural forces, but also a justice that would include all injustice, including that which I'm guilty of and which you're guilty of. And Jesus, knowing that because of justice, he couldn't just turn a blind eye to us, Jesus chose to take the punishment we deserve by taking our place. So authentic spirituality is to recognize what Jesus did for you and it is to love him above anything else. And authentic spiritual power is to follow Jesus with all that we have for our whole life no matter what he asks. What is the mark of the true believer? It is to know in your heart of hearts 
that it is Jesus or nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as ones who have been given the great gift of salvation. A gift of salvation that comes with you dwelling within us as the Holy Spirit to change us to more like Jesus. And we thank you. But if there are those today who have never understood what that means, I pray that they would put their trust in you for the very first time, that they would see life change, that they would appreciate the forgiveness that you offer and the realization that no darkness, no power of supernatural oppression, no guilt or sin from our own lives can ever hold us back from being loved by you. Amen.